turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 9. We're going to look at a small passage out of there briefly in just a few moments. 1 Corinthians 9. While you're turning there, just a little public service announcement and reminder. Uh, this was the year we started going through our Bible and trying to read it through, but in do it so in two years. We are about to come up on the halfway mark. And uh, so if you have not joined us, or this is new information to you, you've since been a part of the church after we started this, um, or you just fell behind, well, great news. Why don't you pick up where we left off? On the app is the Bible reading plan. You just follow it through one day at a time. There's catch-up days that are built in there. And I want to highlight one item in particular with you all, just sort of an encouragement to consider, and that's this book. I have this myself. It's How to Read the Bible Book by Book by Gordon Fee. Talk about a great Christmas present to encourage someone not only to continue reading the Bible, but as a help. Because if you pick up where we are, we're going to do uh, Psalms and Proverbs again. And um, you're going to pick up with the prophets. And those can be some tough books uh, in the Old Testament. This will be a great little tool. And it kind of follows along. It breaks uh, its own. It's broken up much as our reading plan is as well. So it can give you some helps as you go along and you don't feel like you're grappling in the dark with some of those texts that are somewhat difficult to understand and follow along with. So I highly encourage you to consider what a great Christmas present. No royalties. I don't get anything for this. But a great Christmas present for somebody else and helping them in their spiritual walk. Well, Going on kind of looking at our passage today, this is sort of a part two of something that we were looking at last week. But I'll begin with this. I, I, when, when our son used to live in Boston, I got to talk with him just about sort of the character and the identity of that city. And he said, Dad, if you want to define this city in one word, the word would be activists. Activism is such a big thing out here. Everyone has all these different causes and things that they hold to and they believe in. And it's a big college town. Uh, there's a lot of industry, or companies and so forth up there, but a lot of colleges, a lot of people looking for a reason to live. How will I invest my life? What are the more important things that I can be a part of? And so as a result, they're very intentional about sharing what it is that they hold to, uh, the activism, the, uh, the action that they want to see you be a part of. And they're fairly successful because they're aggressive in getting that word out. Now, in contrast, I heard a stat this week. It has to do with the church, and I'm only going to talk about church attendance right now on this. This comes out of the uh, Malfers Group, which is a Christian church support, support organization. And they said in the year 2000, so we're talking 23 years ago, the average median church attendance was 137. So most churches are small throughout America, but it was 137. And yet in 2020, that number had dropped to 65 65, the average median church attendance. And they make the point, churches are shrinking in America. They are. Why? Well, we could probably go through a laundry list of a number of different things and reasons behind it. But one of the main reasons is because we aren't doing what the activists are. And that is getting our message out of what we hold and we believe to. And I know I'm not going to get any pushback when I make these comments. What we have and the message that we have is so much greater than anything any activist organization can elevate and uphold. We have, the we have the message of how you can know God, how the burden of your sin can be lifted and can be taken away from you, 
how you can have not only a relationship with God, but you can know him deeply and intimately, and as a result, you can know others around you. And you can know how this world works based upon his word and the wisdom that he gives us through that word. So there's so many things that we have, and eternal souls are on the line as a result of this. People that don't know the Lord will not be with him. They get what they ask for, a separation. Well, we want to get that message out. And our goal is not necessarily to just get churches fuller, all right? That is just a means of measurement. Ultimately, it's about us helping people know this God and have a life that isn't vapid, have a life that isn't empty. But how do they get there? Someone has to show them. Someone has to come around them and help them. And so as I said last week, and sought to encourage us, we can see the idea of sharing our faith. I want to highlight again that I want to expand our view of evangelism. This is not about feeling guilty and feeling bad, and it all rests on you. Instead, we need a paradigm shift, because again, too often when we talk about evangelism, here's what we think, what I have to do. My high-pressure sales, me in this moment, and anything I can do to make this person change their mind, it, it all rests on me. And the challenge is that it's a little bit bigger than that. Because if that's going to be our mindset, quite often, our heart motives, um, our direction, how we'll do this, will be greatly tainted, even bent in a wrong way. So we need to see evangelism, not only as what God would have me be able to do in a moment, but to see a team mindset behind it. And that it's often a process for people, not just a singular event where a person comes and puts on high-pressure sales. And recognizing God can use me today with the level of engagement of relationship I have with a person in this moment. And there's lots of different components that he uses in that process of reaching out and communicating and letting people know God really does love them. So last week, we compared our efforts to the ways that the Bible illustrates those efforts through agriculture. And if you might recall, we started with the idea of preparing the soil, and that's plowing. Now, what do I mean when I say plowing? I mean this, recognizing that there are social and physical barriers out there to us and to the message. And so finding ways that we can break through those barriers that might exist between us and seeing the need to plow through them and getting along and being with people that maybe and probably are outside of our normal circle of friends. And so we can do this by finding common ground with them that will enable us to connect. So do we have a hobby? Do you have a hobby? And maybe that's something that you could share with an individual? Great opportunity. Or maybe it's just a common problem, like you know, your, leave, or your yard has 2,000 pounds of leaves in the front, and you don't know how to take care of them, neither does your neighbor. So now you guys can work together and take a combined effort to take care of this. And now you've got something in common or finding out some sort of a need that you can meet. Or just like what you heard with the Haker saying, hey, there's an opportunity for us just to be a blessing, to go and to hear and to listen, to ask questions and be a part of their lives. But plowing is discovering the ways that you can break out of the social or situational isolation that we have with other people to love and engage with a person and be in their life wherever it is they are. We also looked at the second part of the harvest, and that's sowing the seed. And this is about engaging at a different level. This is going into their thoughts, going into the ideas, philosophies, this kind of a discussion that we have. And this, quite frankly, is the place where often we have the opportunity to actually share the gospel 
and we can tell people the truth. But sometimes this engagement that we have with a person might not be that. It might be a preview, a teaser, if you will, to cause them to stop and to think. So maybe questions that we would ask them that force them to walk away and start beginning to ask, okay, what is it about God? What is it about my life? What is it about the universe that I think? And begin to wrestle with it. And here's the thing. We live in an area that's pretty rich. I think it's the richest still, I think it's still the richest county in America. Let me tell you one of the ways that really can challenge people and be effective. So many people are selling themselves too cheaply by investing all of their life in what they can do and what they can accomplish right now, not realizing that basically they're on a high-speed course to a destination that they really don't know where that destination is. That maybe it's just materialism or it's goods or it's success, but before long, you start to find out those things don't really satisfy. I liken it to a person who decides to go bungee jumping, and it isn't until they get to the bottom that they realize that the cord isn't tied to their ankles, it's tied to their necks. And it's at this point they go, what did I sell out for? What was my life all about? And so here's the point that we can begin our challenge with them. Where are you going? To what end? is your life headed towards? To what purpose? And so as Christians, when we're engaging at this, remember something, we really are looking at what will be the impact that God will have in and through us. It isn't about ourselves, but we start to, we start to get ourselves ready to be able to be used by him towards his ends. And so our engagement, again, it's not about asking, what's my legacy? What am I going to leave behind as a result of my time here on the earth? The Bible never pushes you in that direction. It pushes you in a very different direction to ask, what will I send on ahead of me? Who will be there to greet me because of what I did now and what I did here? It's not looking back. It's looking ahead. Well, that brings us to the final two aspects here of this harvest of the souls and considering the question, what are we doing to help other people? to find and to know God, because Christmas is one of the best opportunities that we have to do this. So let me take you to the third point and the challenge that we can go with people, and that is cultivating the soil. Just like any plant has got to have water, it's got to have fertilizer, it has to be tended to, you've got to remove the weeds, so too do lives. So cultivating the soil, when I mention this, this is about engaging at the emotional level, at the relational level with people, at the heart level. And you're learning to love the person even while you plant the seed. And folks, this can be an enormous amount of fun. Yes, even for you introverts. This can be an amazing amount of fun and a real delight that comes as we relate to people. Um, think about this. What was the number one accusation the religious people leveled against Jesus? He's a friend of sinners. He was a friend. He was cultivating into people's lives. Remember Zacchaeus? Zacchaeus goes to see him and says, hey, Zacchaeus, little man, come on down. Come on down. I want to do something. I'm going to your house today. Let's go. And he got up close and he got up personal. Or you remember the woman who came into the religious man's house and he began to weep over Jesus, uh, taking her tears to wipe his feet. And when he knew the others were looking down on her, he lifts this woman up. It's as almost as if he puts his arm around her to say, no, 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 no. This woman knows where she stands with God and how God will receive and ex accept her. 
You think about how many times, too, he was involved in being with the people that we would call the untouchables. The untouchables because they had bodily ailments. You want to talk about grossness, the skin, and the or, the, your biggest organ. That thing can get gross, can it not? Depending on the kinds of things that would come upon your skin. Jesus would go to those who would be gross. And he puts his arm on them, around them, getting up close to them and knowing them. And so what he would do physically, he could do relationally as well. And it was the Apostle Paul who wanted to find ways that he could cultivate himself into people's lives by finding common ground. That's what you find in 1 Corinthians chapter 9 and why I had you turn there. Because what Paul does in this chapter is first he begins sort of with the religious freedom that he has. This is a guy who began as a Jew. He began under the law of the Jews. And so there's a lot of tight constraints that he would have to live under. But because he was now a Christian, he had freedoms from that law, and he was going to exercise his freedoms to use them to serve God. Or in some cases, he would surrender his freedoms if that's what would serve God and serve others. So for him, he took the freedoms he had in Christ and submitted them always to this question. Does my freedom hurt or help someone else and how they would become a Christian. 1 Corinthians 9, 19. Follow with me. Paul writes, For though I'm a free from all men, I have made myself a slave to all so that I may win more. To the Jews I became as a Jew so that I might win Jews. And to those who were under the law as under the law, though not being myself under the law, so that I might win those who are under the law. Now, I love this. Because think about this, as particularly within our American society. One of the highest things that we live for is freedom, right? And exercising our freedoms. And this is how we interpret it. Freedom is being able to have the right to do what I want. Ladies and gentlemen, Paul has a different mindset on freedom than you do. Rather than doing what I want, for Paul it meant doing what I can. Doing what I ought as a means to help somebody else know the Savior. That's what his freedoms do. They were a stewardship that God gave to him. It doesn't mean that he had no moral compass. You know, he threw out all that. No, that's mayhem. That's not at all where he went. It just means if he was with the Jews, he was going to live according to Jewish law, and he wasn't going to do things that would be offensive to them. He put himself under a tighter constraint. And so when he goes over to their house, and uh, they come over to his house, and he's got bacon in the fridge, he's not fixing bacon for them in the morning. That's how you know you love somebody, if they don't eat bacon on your behalf. He would withhold that, which was against the law. Verse 21, to those who are without law, as without law, though not being without the law of God, but under the law of Christ, so that I may win those who are without law. So again, he's not saying no law whatsoever. He's saying um, when, when I'm around these Gentiles, and they're not under Jewish law, and I go to their house, and they start saying, hey, we want to offer you shrimp, which a Jew couldn't eat. He could say, absolutely, so kind of you. Let's sit down at the shrimp bar, go down there together, and have a feast. And he can allow that to be a, f a freedom now he can exercise as a means of building and cultivating a relationship. Verse 22, he says, to the weak. And when he says that, here's what he means. Someone who's got this tighter list of personal convictions about things. They don't have as much freedom. So to the weak, he said, I became weak, that I might win the weak. 
I have become all things to all men, so that I may by all means save some. I do all things for the sake of the gospel, that I may become a fellow partaker of it. So his point, fertilization of the soul meant either using your freedoms in Christ to find and even create common ground to be winsome with your freedoms, or voluntarily surrendering those freedoms, giving them up if it was going to help another person in their walk of faith. So cultivating the soil, again, it comes back to these actions. What is it that I can do as a means of building a relationship in a good and godly way that will exalt God and point other people towards him? Ways that will not compromise me morally, not at all, but ways that I can help others. Now, for some of us, when we have this opportunity with people, we can kind of come down somewhat hard with them, can't we? Because we feel a sense of urgency, and there's nothing wrong with that. I was talking with a gentleman last week, and he was talking about the stress on this and using the agricultural analogy. He says, yeah, you can get to where you're so diligent with them that you're just hoeing the ground so much that you, in essence, dredge all the water away and all the nutrients too. And you don't want to be that, you don't want to have that mindset. You want to be the type that is winsome and close with others. And when evangelism, when we take the mindset, this is what we do, and it all hinges on me, we will lean in this direction. A deep pressure, and it gets us out of balance. I remember a friend of mine at one point talking about, he, he, he just so wanted his in-laws to come to know the Savior. And so, man, they went into hyperdrive with them. And his in-laws got on a plane and came to visit them, and said when they got off the plane, his in-laws were wearing horns. And they were making a statement against them. You know, this is what you've made us out to be. And they realized we've come on way too strong. We needed to back off. Cultivating means loving, befriending, not just trying to do something to make them a Christian, but truly be caring, loving, and receiving so that a person would actually want to be my friend as much as they would want to be a Christian. So when you invite them to your gatherings, speak to them, have fun with them, enjoy it. Every time you do that, you're cultivating the soil. That's a part of it. And you're doing evangelism. It's part of it. Now, for a lot of us, I think if we're going to be honest, one of the hardest parts and the reason um, it's so hard is because too often we really don't have non-Christian friends. We've gotten to the point where We like to be around people who are like us, and our time is limited, and so that time continues to be spent on those people. I reread recently the statistic that most believers within two years of having become a Christian no longer have non-Christian friends. They're they're cut out. Now, we we do need to be engaged with believers. Believers are going to help us in our own spiritual growth and going to encourage us and build us up. But you may have to discipline yourself. I might have to discipline myself to purpose to get in the path with non-Christians. So let me just stop right here. I want to I present a question to you. Who are non-Christians in your life right now? What names come to your mind? What faces? Start there. Jack, none come to mind. I don't really know any. Well, then here's my next question. What can you do to put yourself in the path of non-Christians? 
What hobbies, what interests, what will you pick up? I think it's good to start with hobbies, commonalities, things you have. Many of you, maybe it's a school relation, something through your kids. Or maybe it's just like helping your neighbors with a task at his or her house. And I come back to, again, the Christmas time, the Christmas season. Man, this is a time when we can do something real simple, like what you just heard. We can drop off a pie at somebody's house and just learn their names and begin to reach out and to minister in some way. We've had that reverse Advent calendar. That's a great place to begin. You've got these people that are coming to your door every day delivering these boxes. Well, maybe this is a great opportunity for you to leave something for them, and you begin to cultivate the relationship. It's been a little while, but one of the things, when our boys were really young, they just really took a liking to the mailman. And they got to where they would go, and they would sit on the front porch eating their peanut butter and jelly sandwiches, waiting for the mailman to come by so they could wave and say, hey. And built a relationship. My goodness, one Christmas, he gave them both a little matchbox car. And so we're, we're trying to build this, this relationship with him. Then we come to find out he's a believer. He's actually a brother to somebody that went to our church. But my point behind all this is this frequent encounter opened the door for just being able to get to know someone a little deeper. And if we're going to do it, we have to be intentional. It's not going to accidentally happen. We have to be intentional to go about with our eyes wide open. And when we engage, let me just remind you something. It is never wasted time. Even if on the backside you go, oh, I wish I would have said this. I wish I would have done this. I wish we could have gone down this. Let me tell you something. It's never wasted time. You can learn from it. But then you move. You continue to build that relationship. And so when we do this, I'll remind you, evangelism will never be a project. And people will never be a project. You'll start to love them as individuals. And then it's that outflow of a love for them and a love for God that you begin to try to find unique ways that maybe you can be the one to put a hand on them and a hand on God and bring them together. So if you participate in any of these actions, let me remind you, you're probably going to find yourself participating in the fourth aspect that I want to share with you. And that is reaping the harvest. And that is bringing people into the faith. Bringing them to a point of decision. The place where after the plowing of seeds and the cultivation, then you begin to ask them some questions. And so questions can be like this. Well, what do you think? If you shared the gospel, what do you think about this? See what they say. Listen to them. You don't have to win this. Ask them and see what they say. Have you come to the place where you know God will let you in the heaven? See what they say. What's the answer? Have you trusted in Christ? Or maybe even this last one here, have you ever attended a church? Because, now that isn't necessarily bringing them to faith, but it could be the next step in their journey of faith to bring them around the company of believers. And then if things begin to open up, you know, ask permission to share what you believe. Oftentimes when you ask, can I share with you what I believe? More often than not, people say yes, and they will listen. It's when we start cramming it down their throats that they start to get a little resistant. But ask them. And when you do, let me just give you this. I've done this before in a sermon, but it's worth highlighting again. You're just covering mainly four points. You get these four points and you memorize these four or five scriptures, you've got everything you need to communicate the truth of the gospel. You just remember it's God, man, Jesus, and faith. You start with God. God is pure and perfect and holy. And if you can memorize this verse with it, now you're presenting to them what the word says about this. What about man? Man's a sinner and he's condemned. That all have sinned and fall short. And the wages of sin is death. 
God, man, Jesus. Bring them to this. Jesus is the God man who can take away their sin and give them his righteousness. God, man, Jesus, faith. What is the call? To believe in the person and the finished work of Jesus Christ. So again, you have these. This is just like a rough outline. It's not a canned speech, but it's a means by which you can just sort of bridge the gap for them to understand what it is that you believe and what it is that will save them. In the meantime, you share and they go, oh, that's great. And they walk away. Okay, that's all right. God will continue to do his work. And so what will you do? It doesn't mean that every conversation you have to bring this up again, but you're going to be ready and you're going to be thinking about different ways. And maybe the next time you talk, you don't talk about this at all. Maybe the next one after that, you go, hey, you know, we talked a little bit about, you know, how's a man right with God? Did you give me that any thought? Got any, you got any further thoughts on that? Where are you? And just see what they do. But all of this is a part of recognizing this will be God's work in their lives. And you have this moment, this season, this aspect of cultivating and building into the harvest. Now, I haven't listed this as another one, but I probably should have put it, probably should have made it a list of five. The final thing that we do need to remember in any type of harvesting and working towards God's purposes of reaching souls is prayer. We have to be a people that pray. Any farmer will tell you they can work 18-hour days, six, seven days a week. They can have all the highest-end machinery, all the best equipment. They have have the finest workers, and if it doesn't rain, it's all for naught. Or if a plague of grasshoppers comes through, it'll be all for naught. It's the same with us. We have to be a people that are prepared, but we're going to be a people who pray. And we ask the Lord of the harvest to change hearts. We ask him to send out more workers into the harvest even as we ourselves are taking the next step of faith in this. I find it interesting, even the Apostle Paul made this. He, he prayed that doors would open. He prayed for clear conversation, for responses that people would have, for a clarity of speech, and for outside influences to be quelled. Now, you do this. Every once in a while, somebody's going to ask you a question, and it may go something like this. They may ask you the same question that the crowds asked Peter. What must I do? And now you get to say, repent and be baptized. Repent and believe and walk by faith. I love how when uh, Paul was talking to King Agrippa, and King Agrippa sort of going back and forth, and at one point, Paul throws him this question. He says, King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know you do. And Agrippa's like, whoa, 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 Paul. And he tries to back out. Paul makes this effort to bring him back in and say, I want to build on something that you say you believe and just start there. And as you and I are plowing and sowing and cultivating and harvesting, I can make you a promise, you will see God work. He may not work in exactly the way you were expecting, but we, can, we will see God work. And to give you a sort of a bigger picture of what I'm talking about, Ken Boa, in his book, Conform to His Image, gave these two images that really marked me. They're two of triangles. And often we operate this way. You see in the bottom, cultivating, and at the top, reaping. The idea that we have to do all this work on reaping, but don't have to really invest a lot in people's lives. And a structure like this is not stable. The challenge that I'm giving you all today is that we flip that. That cultivating is where we put our hearts and our minds and our efforts and our prayers, such that eventually we'll start to see the reaping. Now, some of you may go, well, Jack, 
Let me tell you something. One time I just went out, I shared the gospel with somebody. They believed right there on the spot. It's like, well, that's great. Can I make a bet with you? Somebody else was doing this. You just happened to step in at this phase. So we're doing all of it. We're cultivating, investing, as well as getting ready to reap. One pastor said evangelism, like sanctification, takes time. Therefore, we must take the time it takes. So again, my challenge, let's see evangelism as a much greater effort, not just me in this moment, but something we are all doing and recognizing what part of the harvest you're entering into, what part you can participate in today and in the coming days as they unfold. So we don't always get to do the actual harvesting, but we will always be able to participate in the whole action of what God is doing in lives and in souls and the people that we encounter and we communicate with. Last point. When you're doing this, a lot of you, if you're, I, I've been this way too, I'm sure you have too, we get self-conscious. Jack, if I get out there and I start trying to share the faith, I'm going to set it back 500 years. You know, I'm not very good with my speech. I don't, I don't really know how I'm going to do this or, or how it's going to work. And so here's my challenge to you. I've given you some tools. Study them. And as best as you can, be prepared. But embrace the reality that you're not going to have all the answers all the time. They may ask you something and stump you, and you go, huh, I never thought about that. I need to go away and think about that a little bit further. That's okay. You might even mess something up along the way. And so what happens? God will give you the opportunity to clear it up, but doing your best shot. But you're not going to have everything ready at the surprise moments that God brings in your path. And so let me just leave you with this. I love what one pastor, Earl Palmer, said about this. And he gave it by way of example. He was talking about the local junior high school and that they were doing a um, concert. And they were going to do Beethoven's Ninth Symphony. Have you ever heard ninth graders do Beethoven's Ninth Symphony? <laughs> okay, it's less than ideal, put it that way. I played in band in junior high. It was less than ideal. It can be a little bit messy. This is what Palmer said. He said, you know, Beethoven is never on trial when the junior high orchestra plays the Ninth Century, Ninth Symphony. And Jesus Christ is not on trial when you or I or even C.S. Lewis tries to express the faith in a conversation or a sermon. But then he added this. But were it not for the junior high orchestra, there are some who would not have heard any Beethoven. Playing badly is better than not playing at all. And you and I might at times in our communicating, we might smudge the lines a little bit. It won't necessarily be crisp and clear and perfect. But that's the mystery of evangelism, that even though we smudge the lines, it can still be read.